IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we will be looking at the music and career of Bon Iver. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? So I'm just going to be real with our audience. Like, for the foreseeable future, this is where I'm going to talk about Billions. Um, I'm on season three, apparently. Oh, this is great. Yeah, so I'm about 60% of the way there. So sometime maybe in September, we'll, you know, be able to switch subjects. But, uh, I, you know, I bring it up not just because there it's just got the best needle drops in the game. I've really been re-familiarizing myself with some of the classics of mid 2010's indie rock there's a scene where they go to a high concept strip club and Mitski's your best american girl is playing uh it's amazing yes but you know more i I think the bigger influence is the way that it's kind of gotten me to think about every interaction i have on a daily basis is like a series of convoluted scheming um and so i here just hear me out with this so People, so are you like Paul Giamatti or are you uh, so, like Bobby Axelrod? And so, and, so, like, and so this is the question I need the audience to answer because if you're uh, if you're a loyal IndieCast listener, you remember last week that Steve kind of floated the idea of which one of us is going to get canceled first. And then yeah. this week, if you follow us on Twitter, which I assume is an IndieCast listener, you probably do. Uh, I made some remarks about uh, certain songs on Radiohead's Amnesiac that I'm not a huge fan of. Oh, yeah. And then, that's right. And so Steve pointed out, hey, I'm looking for a new indie cast host, by the way. Ha, ha, ha. We all had a good laugh about it. And so... It might have been a joke. And then you take those... It's unclear if it's a joke. You take those... I thought so, too. And then I saw today on our outline where we go over, um, you know, we go over what we're going to talk about and Steve knows I'm going to be the first person to talk. The first thing you see is, should we talk about Lord's album cover? And so yes. this is, you played, you, <laughs> laying a trap. Yeah, you, you, laying a trap you picked you. the wrong time to play 4D chess with me. You know, I'm going to take a Brian Koppelman type line here and say, I guess I'm Paul G. Meisick. Like, I'm Bobby Fischer in the Matrix. You know, just one of these very, very elaborate uh, metaphors that they use on this show. So I- I'm on. I'm on to you. <laughs> so that's our dynamic. You're the Giamatti, and I'm the Damian Lewis. Is that is that going to be our? Thing yeah, be- because like I said in the last episode, you're the one who's accumulated far more success in this writing game, and I'm oh. just and I'm the and and I'm like the person who's like I don't know motivated by some sort of bizarre principle. I'm like willing to blow the equivalent of 27 million cred dollars to take you down. I I don't know. You know, I didn't well, I didn't I didn't think that far through. Maybe I'm not Paul Giamatti. <laughs> I mean, you know, cuz the Lord album cover, we don't have to yeah. talk about this very much. It is, I mean, I joked about this uh on Twitter that being middle-aged music critics the way we are, two guys in our 40s, it is a little awkward to talk about this album cover because I remember I saw it and my first thought was that's a really good album cover. It's very striking. Yeah. You know, it like sticks in your mind, but then you're like, am I really going to go in depth talking about this album cover in social media? I feel like I am setting myself up here for uh, just like quote tweet hell. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if, if I talk about this cover, which by the way, if you haven't seen it, uh, look it up. Yeah. It, it, I mean, is that Lord on the cover I, or is that I don't like a vintage know. Like, photo of somebody else? I, I have no idea. 
Um, it's unclear, but it's someone's uh, someone's ass, basically. Yeah, yeah. It actually of the outbreak right in your face. Yeah, and that's really all there is to it. You know, it's like that's, it's 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 interesting because, like, on the one hand, it definitely is a conversation piece, and on the other, it's like, uh, how do I have a conversation about this? So, who? Yeah, the, like, how do I talk about this in an analytical way where I'm not objectifying it in some way? Because because again, when I say like I I saw it, I thought yeah that is going to be a cover that people remember. Yeah. You know, most album covers are forgettable. Uh-huh. That is, you know, just from like a, what, a, like a design standpoint, yeah. I thought like, that's a striking album cover. But yeah, you can't really go in depth too much yeah. with that without looking uh, like a creeper or something. <laughs> it, 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 Lord, Lord is putting the male music critics on blast. This is like great psyops yeah. against the male it's, music it's critic a very, industrial complex. It's a very billions type move. You know, it's like, a, <laughs> it's a form, everything is billions. Like that's like, like she's the Giamatti. Yeah. Ex- We're the Damian Lewis. Uh, I think in this scenario, Yeah, got, like, she, like she's getting us with this big time. Yeah. But here, here, here's the thing though, man. Like if you want to like really get me interested in album cover, like don't, you know, putting legs on the, like, or an ass on the album cover, like, if she really wanted to entrap me, she would have put, like, some barren Midwestern, like, uh, picture or, like, a house on the cover. So, she doesn't know <laughs> her audience. The... <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you something, because right. there was some controversy in your corner of the internet oh, Lord. this week with involving a record, I think your favorite record of all time, oh. Clarity. Yes. By, by Zed. Jimmy World. <laughs> it's not um, not the Zed album that I don't know I don't know I, I don't know if that joke landed with Steve I, I once again you got to know your no I, it did no, <laughs> okay there's there's Marshmallow yeah there's Zed and then there's uh, Jimmy World in the three spot for you there it is um and Pitchfork did this uh, Sunday review mm-hmm. on the record which you know Pitchfork does this every week it's like a long review really goes in depth usually about a record that they're uh, paying homage to. I don't really think they've ever done like a record in that slot that got a negative review. They did. That would be interesting. They did. They did. Yeah, I believe uh, what was that? it was um, forty ounces to freedom. They did a sublime one that they gave like more or less a negative review of. Uh, I know they did uh, blood sugar sex. They magic, did, but that was got... like cautiously positive. Same with uh, I got like a seven point one, which I think <laughs> I'm not a Chili Peppers fan really, but that record, yeah, I do have a soft spot. Oh, for. of course. I would. I would kick. I kicked that up to it. You know, eight. it's it's get that it's funny. Get that one an eight. It's funny because like when you mentioned the Lord album cover, I saw on Twitter someone compared it to a a, a shot a screenshot from the Give It Away video. So it all ties together. There you go. Um, all in time for the thirtieth anniversary. But anyway, so Pitchfork does this re- Sunday review of of Clarity, and there's this discussion that's going on about the original review that Pitchfork <laughs> ran, which is no longer on the site. It, it got a three point five. Ah. Originally, I think, right? Wasn't that, it three point five? Three point five. There's a couple conver- there's a couple things I want to ask you about here, but like the first thing I think to talk about is because this leads. We're going to talk about this a little bit later. This we we got a listener question that's somewhat related to this issue, but this thing about publications black holing reviews from the past. Yes. Uh, that maybe <laughs> no longer adhere to their standards of professionalism, which I would assume was the case here. Yeah. Like a lot of those early Pitchfork reviews, they don't really fit with the style of the website now. Yeah. Um, and I feel like you and I are probably on the same page with this. Like, I, I'm not a fan of that. I don't like it when sites do that. I understand the, the thinking. 
Um, because Pitchfork, I'm sure, is thinking that people are going to Google this album and they're going to see this original review and think that this is what they're going to judge the site based on this review, <laughs> and they don't really want that to happen. Yeah. But but I really like going on like the Rolling Stone website and reading reviews of like Led Zeppelin two where they totally <laughs> shit on it. Yeah. You know. To me, that's part of like history. I like seeing the evolution yeah. that happens in taste, mm-hmm. and I and I wonder if we're going to be losing that now because those old reviews that maybe people are ashamed of now are so easy to get rid of. Yeah, you know, there's no hard copy of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that happened, and I th- this is like an actual thing, is that the when when they migrated to like a new website or a CMS or whatever, a lot of the reviews got lost. And it, actually, if you even look at like. Some of the, like when I've like done research or I've had the hyperlink to reviews I wrote back in like 2015 or 16 before the migration, like you'll see like so much of the copy is just completely messed up. It's like almost illegible. So that's a part of it. Um, But yeah, I mean, I kind of like the earliest review. Like, I mean, I was a reader of it back then and I saw like, they just would completely shit on like the promise ring and Jimmy Eat world. And I would get like super mad, but the style of writing really appealed to me. And also one of the things that they don't bring, no one's brought up is that this is not the first time that they've um, re-reviewed an album that uh, got, you know, shit on originally. The first one, I remember this a few years back, uh, they did a Sunday review of Bell and Sebastian's The Boy with the Arab Strap, which got a 0.8 back in 1999 on the original. What was the deal with that? I have no Just fucking clue. Because, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, if you're feeling sinister, I'm sure, I don't know if that would have predated Pitchfork, but I'm sure yeah. the original OG Pitchfork people would have loved that. Record. Oh, yeah. No, but it, it was like but, a very bizarre um, dislike for that one specific album. But, you know, in, in general, it's like, how do I... I, I, I love reading the old Rolling Stone reviews. I love seeing the old spin ones. And, you know, there's a, they're kind of hard to archive. I don't know if, like, all of them are online, specifically if it was in print or whatever. But, yeah, I, I do think that here, – here's what I like about the old review. Like, I think nowadays, and we talk about this a lot, how there isn't the same sort of, I don't know, divisive uh, approach to writing – for a number of reasons, but when, you know, people would say like, oh, they were just being unnecessarily mean or, you know, they're just being snarky for the bit snake of being snarky. Like, look, I know a lot of the people who reviewed Jimmy World albums back then, you know, whether it's Ryan Schreiber, Mark Richardson, even guys like Rob Mitchum. I see you out there, Rob. And, uh, you know, Mark Hogan. It's like, I know for a fact they really think that album is a 3.5, you know? It's like there's no hedging. There's no, well, I don't know what our audience is going to think. We might need to be a little bit more careful. I think that there's this, I don't know, a lack of self-consciousness that uh, I appreciate about those early times. And you know what? It's a lot freer back then. Yeah. You felt like you could write and not have... A thousand people jump down your throat, yeah, which immediately, it, yeah, which is, you know, which is, which has, which is a good and bad, yeah, it's a good. I mean, and bad like thing. in some ways, it's good when people jump down your throat because sometimes you need to be checked. Yes, you know, you need people to say like, "Hey, wait a second, you're crossing the line," and that, and sometimes as a writer, you have to be big enough to recognize when it's good to be called out. Yeah, um, but yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I miss that sense of freedom a little bit, and also the idea that like. 
it was harder back then to know what other people thought of a record. Yeah. Uh, it, you couldn't just go to Twitter and and get a consensus feeling pretty mm-hmm. quickly. Sometimes you would hate a record that a lot of other people liked. Yeah. And you had no way of knowing that until your review was published. Yeah. Um, and I and I so that I have a I have issue with like the idea that you know that what's going on right now is inherently superior as far as like a writing method. I mean, I think things evolve and they improve. But when you look at like a lot of the stuff that people are like, oh, it's so snarky and like troublesome. Also like that sort of style of writing in the early internet days was like a response to, you know, the Rolling Stone always giving five stars to like Mick Jagger albums or something like that. It was like a time where it was a shift away from what seemed like a pretty locked in, um, like hierarchical sort of thing where, um, you know, like it, it, there was a lot more connection between, you know, the artists and the publication. And, you know, there, this was kind of rebellious. And now uh, it shifted away from that. And I guarantee in 20 years or even 10 years, there will be a aspect of writing right now that will age extremely poorly. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. 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 Again, I would say like that Pitchfork by and large is much better written. Oh, now yeah. Than it was oh, totally. 20 years ago. <laughs> but. To your point, there's also a conformity to music writing now. There's not these stylists that you had back then. A lot of whom were, were not good stylists. No. <laughs> they, were, they were trying to, you know, be Hunter S. Thompson, like a lot of them, or you know, some other, you know, person from the new journalism. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of that going on, and a lot of it was obnoxious. But there was a sense of freedom back then, because just because the internet was a different place, and yeah. there were there weren't as many people on there. It was harder to um, mobilize big groups of people like in mobs to like go against someone who was like the main character on the internet that day. Um, so it was just different back then. So yeah, you know, maybe it's better overall now, but yeah, there's some things from the past that yeah. I miss. There's one thing I want to ask you though, as a spokesman for, for emo nation, because one thing I see a lot in your corner of the internet is there seems to be a bit of a chip on people's shoulders about the media and music critics and how they've written about like that kind of music, you know, emo punk, whatever, which I totally understand. I I totally understand reading the, the original review of clarity and being super annoyed that this album that's considered a classic in that world is, well, it it became a classic. Anyway, this album that's beloved. Yes. Being, being shit on in a not particularly thoughtful way. I totally get that, mm-hmm. but Pitchfork comes back twenty years later, and they do put out a thoughtful review. Yeah, you know that's well written and well considered. And yet, I still see people who are mad <laughs> about the review from twenty years ago, yeah. and I'm just wondering, like, like what is the remedy then? All right, you know, yeah. like, like if you're still going to be mad about this review, well, it's like things have changed. Yeah. you know, there's been progress. It's like, are you still going to be mad about the thing? Yeah. And this idea that, like, well, they're just doing it now because it's more profitable to, like, say nice things about Jimmy Eat World. That's, no, it's that's not. A, that's, a, that's a silly argument. Yeah. Like, let's not make that argument. I just wonder, because, again, I, I get the initial feeling of annoyance, but when the same place comes back and they actually remedy that and you're still mad, 
Like, what do you? Like, well, what do you, like, what do you want? Uh, like, what do you want then? Well, you're. I mean, one of the one of the guys who is definitely mad is uh, Jimmy World's drummer. I mean, like, I I know <laughs> the guy. Right, I know, you clap back. Yeah, I know. You clap back at them. I know. I know the. I know the guy pretty well, and he like he 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 definitely when he, he, he gives he gives he he likes to talk shit like Zach. Well, and, and he gets a pass because yeah. he's in the band. I understand his resentment because he's in the band. He's probably like, hey, too little, too late. Yeah, exactly. But it's so I. As far you maybe get a pass for if you're in the band, it's a different thing. Yeah, but as far as like the you know the emo nation people or whatever, I mean, uh, look, I, I think that it's it's really hard to overstate like the effect that 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 era had on the perception of like emo music, um, and you know things have changed sort of. Um, I still think there is a sense that it's not really taken seriously, but you know, at the same time, I think that kind of fuels. Still, I, there's still that feeling. I because I, look, I'm in a corner of the internet where a lot of things don't even get reviewed ever, yeah. and, and 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 aren't even close to being considered. I look at mainstream indie sites. Stereo Gum put an emo record at the top of their mid-year album yeah. list. You know, like I'm not seeing that for <laughs> other genres of music. You know, I. I I feel like if you still feel like this music's being disrespected, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I'm not seeing that. I, I, I feel like at this moment in time, there's like a lot of writers at these <laughs> sites. You know, with you at the head, you know, you're the you're the godfather oh, Lord. of of modern emo music writing. You're gonna make a, a lot, lot of people, people mad by saying that. <laughs> well, that's fine. I but, but uh, you know, a lot of people have followed in your footsteps with that. I mean, so to, at this point to still carry a grudge with that, I feel like feels like a little misguided. I feel like maybe it's time to to get over that. Yeah, and maybe. and also if anything else, this review kind of answers a question people have been asking me for like the past decade. It's like, yo, how did this get like a seven point eight? It's like, well, if you want to compare any everything to like Clarity, which is indeed my favorite album of all time, we are on an eight point six scale. So next time you see. <laughs> And like my my number one album of the year or whatever, getting a seven eight or an eight point Just remember, oh yeah, Jimmy World's Clarity, and also the American the first American football album. Like that's the scale that we're on. So at the end of the day, this this, this really helped out. You know, this this is our uh, this is the direction going forward. I saw someone compare the new Def Heaven single to American Football. That's right, baby. I like that single. Yeah, it's. I wasn't sure what to think. Oh, of that. I am so stoked for this album. Like, it has been a long time where there was the potential for people. I mean, you want to talk about like people, like emo people, <laughs> holding grudges and being mad. Like, just wait till we have like the Death Heaven album conversation. Like those people, like any sort of like not metal thing is a tremendous affront to their entire identity. I am stoked for this one. I remember I was in a bar in Appleton, Wisconsin, like <laughs> maybe 2014. And I was wearing, this is a whole steady in, song waiting to happen here. Uh, well, I was in this bar. It was like a trivia night and I was wearing a deaf heaven shirt and this dude from across the bar pointed at me. And I don't know what he said, but I'm positive. He was talking shit about me. Because of my shirt. Because <laughs> he could recognize it was a Death Heaven shirt. And this was like a black shirt with like a gray design on it. So, And it was like a dark bar. So he would have had to have like radar glasses on to see this shirt. But he was like a true blue metalhead. And he's like, this poser over here is wearing a Death Heaven shirt. And this was like in the wake of Sunbather getting all that critical love. Mm. 
I want to see that guy when he hears the new Def Heaven record. He's going to uh, yeah. he's going to track me. I don't live in Wisconsin anymore. He's going to get in a car and drive several hours <laughs> and park yeah. outside my house. Like Kobe and, Bryant, and laugh yeah, at me. like Kobe Bryant and Temecula. That whole story. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's segue uh, to our mailbag segment here. And uh, thank you all, again, for everyone who's written into us. Uh, it's always great to hear from our listeners. You can hit us up at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. Uh, also, thank you to everyone who's left us reviews. Mm. Keep them coming. Yes. Ian and I get a check for $1,000 for every five-star review. So at, here at uh, IndieCast HQ, we're going to get some hot tubs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, installed uh we're, we're working on getting a private plane yeah billions like we we've been watching a lot of billions <laughs> right. we're gonna have the chop we're gonna have the indycast chopper we're gonna yep. we're yeah we're gonna like just buy like classic cars and you know plots of land in uh upstate new york you know god i feel terrible what's the name i, I feel terrible that i can't remember Ugh. this but what's the name of axelrod's right hand man wags wags yes. wags I was gonna call him Gail Bedecker. Yeah, Gail Bedecker on Breaking Bad, but what what range too? Because yeah. Gail Bedecker is this super sweet guy, and then he plays Wags, yeah. who's like a huge uh, sleaze ball. Although he has with a heart of gold, a tender exactly. Yeah. He has a tender side All right. to him. <laughs> um, let's get to our mailbag here, and uh, this is a critical email. Oof. We haven't gotten a, a critical email in a long time. Uh, but I wanted to do this one because we got a couple of emails about the Bo Burnham conversation mm. <laughs> that we had last week. Not not a lot of, oh, I mean, maybe there were a lot of fans of that, but like in our mailbag, there were some upset people yeah. about that conversation. And this was one of the people, um, and I think it airs some thoughtful criticisms, which I don't really agree with, but I think they are valid. So let's, let's air them out. Uh, this comes from... Graham in Toronto. Mm. Graham, thanks for writing in. Um, hi, Steve and Ian, devoted listener of the podcast here. Um, however, Steve, I think you really missed the mark with your quick judgment and dismissal of Bo Burnham's Inside last week. Uh. Um, that, of course, is his Netflix special. And I said I watched it for 10 minutes and I shut it off. And then we clowned on it for about five or ten minutes yes in our episode last week in case you missed it as someone who has never even heard of bo burnham before watching it and then i was blown away by it after i saw the special i think it merits more than 10 minutes of viewing before casting it aside or deciding that it is too depressing or too soon to reflect on this past year and a half of life during covid in fact if you give it time i think you'd find that much of the subject matter was actually not related to the pandemic but a clever and unique take about modern life in the social media age. It just happens to have been filmed during the pandemic lockdown. The words COVID and pandemic or lockdown are never actually used. I actually think people could stumble on this Netflix special in 10 or 20 years and not even associate it with the pandemic. Um, but even if it is obliquely commenting on this time, why is that a problem? Would you ignore the CSNY song Ohio in 1971 because it was too topical? Uh. Well, I wasn't alive in that year, yeah. <laughs> so I can't answer that question. Um, anyway, I think watching it and deciding you hate it and thinking it isn't funny is completely fair, but I think watching 10 minutes and dismissing it as Weird Al in a depressive phase to your listeners isn't up to your usual review standards. I was particularly surprised by this comment due to your unabashed love of all things Father John Misty. This Ooh. is directed at me, because your love of Father John Misty is not unabashed. 
Is it even abashed? Yeah. Do you have an abashed love? I, I don't know if I've ever heard the word abashed, you know? It's like the word disgruntled. I never heard the word gruntled before, so... I, I mean, in this context, I would assume that it would mean that you love it with restrictions, since unabashed is... Yeah. You have no restrictions. Yeah. Anyway, while Burnham doesn't have anything resembling the vocal chops of Josh Tillman, mm. my guess is anyone who stands for that album would have a similar outlook to Inside, or at least be open to it. Anyway, just think you should give it more of a chance before judging it so harshly. All the best, Graham from Toronto. Um, so, Graham, thank you for writing in. Um, like I said, a few people wrote in mm. uh, to make this complaint. Uh, one person said that he specifically didn't want to be in the mailbag. So <laughs> we didn't. So I didn't read his letter, although he said that I sounded like his dad in his email, Damn. which I thought was kind of a. I thought that was a pretty good burn, actually. Mm. Um, but anyway, I have thoughts on this. But I was wondering you first, like, what, like, what, how would you respond uh, to Graham's thoughts well, f- on what we said about Bo Burnham? Well, first off, like, I think Gra- Graham, first off, thanks for writing in. But I, I would have to say that, like, the idea that 10 minutes is not enough time to really absorb what Bo Burnham is trying to get across, it... Most people would say, like, I tried to watch 10 seconds and I just turn it off immediately. I tried to watch 30 seconds and I turn it off immediately. Like, this, yeah, like, a lot of the, you know, the people who kind of share our opinions, like, they are just immediately like, nope, not for me. And so, the fact that Steve got 10 minutes in, I want to give him credit for that. Um <laughs> No, because like yeah, a lot of a lot of stuff like this, like okay, can I get that initial gag reflex? Because like, look, my history is that I worked in you know comedy. I worked in talent management in around two thousand nine and ten when Bo Burnham was first starting to blow up, and you know you could see the comedy landscape changing to funnier die videos and musical comedy. Um, I still have PTSD from that time. Like when I see someone, and you you, you just kind of know. Like it's it's like a sixth sense of when a comedian is about to burst into song. I just have this. I sh- it's like a fight or flight gag reflex that it takes everything for me to just not immediately turn it off. And so I don't, you know, I I I I I, I empathize with people who feel the same way. But you know, as far as this thing goes, like. <laughs> I saw our friend from the ringer, Justin Sales, called it the Hamilton for the terminally online. Um, and I think actually this is the sort of thing you might enjoy if you're less online. When I watch this stuff and, you know, I gave it a good, I gave it the old college try. It reminds me of seeing those SN, like those topical SNL skits that make the rounds. Um, you know, you say like, well, what about some a song like Ohio? No, we weren't alive for Ohio. But also... There was no such thing as being terminally online, you know, in that time. Um, and all, and so when I see this stuff now, it's like, it's not that it's mentioning COVID. It's not that it's mentioning like pandemic or whatever. But it's like, I've seen this sort of topic being discussed ad nauseum for like the past five years. And so the when you couch it in musical comedy, like it. It's just a personal taste that I can just not get over. It's like, well, people, when people try to convince me that I'm going to like proto-martyr, you know, it's like, oh no, you got to listen to the lyrics and like the bio is like really cool too. You get a sense of like what they're really about. It's like, no, I just really, my personal taste of talky post-punk, I just can't really get past that. And so it's, yeah, it's to me, this is like, not like Father John Misty, which I've seen. It's not like the 1975, which I've also seen. And I, I'm like... 
to the 1975 what you might be to Father John Misty. It just seems to me like a Saturday Night Live skit. And uh, it's just like it, it feels ti- it feels tired in a way that like I just I also I just people would also say it's like, oh, you should love Hamilton. You're you love history. You love rap. It's like, yeah, that's the reason I can't. <laughs> It's like when you put those things together and like the musical part just does not add anything for me. It's like I honestly think if he were like just to talk about these things as like a normal person, perhaps I would enjoy it more. Yeah, you know, and again, I want to thank Graham for writing in. I want to thank the other people who wrote in that had some problems with that. We welcome feedback. It doesn't always have to be compliments. If you if you don't like something that uh, we say on the podcast, I want to hear. I want to hear about it. Maybe we'll talk about it. We'll respond to you. Uh, and I want to respond to this because, again, multiple people brought it up, and I just have a couple things I wanted to say. Number one, the Father John Misty thing. You know, I've, I've seen other people bring this up. I don't really see the comparison, other than it being a person with a beard who is singing topical songs with funny lyrics. I mean, I, which I guess might be enough for people to make the comparison. Mm. I don't really hear that. I was actually surprised to see people talk about that in our inbox, but it's it's an interesting comparison. Um, As far as the 10 minutes thing, you know, in a way I feel like I brought that up as a a caveat for my opinion. Mm -hmm. You know, like I wanted to divulge the full context for what I was thinking about this special. Instead of just saying I watched it and I didn't like it, (laughs) I said I watched it for 10 minutes which I feel like is my cue to the audience to take my opinion about this specific special with a grain of salt. It's like, well, he didn't like it, but he did only watch it for 10 minutes. So maybe I should take that into consideration when I'm considering how seriously to take his opinion on this specific special. To me, really, I I just wanted to use that special as a jumping off point for talking about the larger issue, which, again, is my aversion at this moment to art that addresses the pandemic because of just where I'm at in my life right now, it's not really something I want to reflect on. Maybe in a year, maybe in five years, I'll be in that place, but I'm in the place right now where I want to get out of the pandemic. I don't want to go back. I don't want art that drags me back into that. Clearly there are a lot of people who feel differently and they, they want to do that and, and, and God love them, you know, enjoy this special as you will. But to me, that was what I wanted to talk about and why I thought that this special was a good jumping off point for that. You know, the Ohio example, again, like I said, I wasn't alive when that song came out. It's a song that I came to appreciate because I heard it on classic rock radio 20 years after Kent State, and I like Neil Young's guitar riff. (laughs) So maybe you're right, and in 20 years, people will will discover this Bo Burnham special, and they'll be like, I don't even. I wasn't even alive during the pandemic, but I liked the songs. Yeah, um, but, I, 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 but I'm, I'm going to choose to be a hater now. It feels good to be a hater right now. Maybe if 20 <laughs> years from now we're still doing this, Graham like writes in. It's like, hey, remember what you said about uh, Bo Burnham special? How you feel now? And you know what? Like at that point, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. But I just had this visceral like, oh my god! Like, can you imagine the 10 year anniversary pieces on 2020 albums? Like. Oh, man. oh God! Well, it'll be interesting. I, w- I want to hear what people who, again, weren't alive at the time, think about the art. Yeah. It'd be interesting to get their perspective. Who don't have the baggage that all of us who lived through it did. I have to say too that uh, you know, regarding the Ohio example, if I were at Kent State 
or if my friend had been killed by one of the National Guard people, maybe I wouldn't like Ohio. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe that song would hit too close to home. You know, in the same way that for me, you know, thinking about the, the pandemic, you know, this is something we all went through, and we all struggled with it in different ways, and I just wanted to address that on the show. I think that for me personally. Uh, I don't want to go to that dark place right now. I'm just not there. And uh, I'm not saying that in a broad sense that other people, I acknowledge other people feel differently, but I, just for me personally, it's not something that's appealing. So, you know, one of the fun things about this show is that Ian and I can talk informally about things <laughs> and we're not writing think pieces yeah. about everything. Um, and sometimes talking normally about something means that you give something a shot and then you, you bail on it after 10 minutes because you can't take it yeah. <laughs> anymore. And, and, and take, and again, take that with a grain of salt. You know, I'm, I'm trying to be as open with <laughs> you guys as I can be. Uh, and you can hear me say that and go, well, that's a half-baked opinion because you only listen to it for 10 minutes and then we can move on from there. But hopefully that suffices as an explanation for those of you yeah. out there who didn't like the Bo Burnham take. I apologize. Well, uh, actually, I don't apologize. Yeah, people I are entitled. I don't say sorry. People are entitled to their it, opinion, you know, even if it's ag- wrong. <laughs> agree to disagree. Hey, I'll say that one. Hey. Has anyone ever said that before? Did I just make that up? Nah. Uh, okay. <laughs> let's move on to the. Let's move on to the meat of our conversation. Yes. We're going to be talking about Bonnie Vare in this episode, mm. and the reason we're talking about Bonnie Vare is that it's the 10th anniversary of the second Bonnie Vare record, which. I'm still confused on the title of this record. Yes. It, it's called Bonnie Ver. I've heard it called Bonnie Ver, Bonnie Ver. Let's just call it Bonnie Ver. Yeah. Once. I mean, because there's this thing with, you know, it's it's like, I, is it I, comma I? Is it I, I? Uh. I mean, there's weird things with multiple Bonnie Ver album titles. But this is a classic record in indie rock. Uh, some people love it. Some people hate it. But it is a landmark record. Um, it won... Uh, Justin Vernon, the Grammy for Best New Artist. I believe it also won the Best Alternative oh. Rock Album at the Grammys uh, that year. And um, it's fair to say that that Bonnie Vare, again, whether you're a fan or you're not, is one of the most influential artists uh, of modern indie rock. Oh, yeah. And we're going to parse that influence in this conversation. I should also say that I, I did a big piece on Bonnie Vare. I, I wrote about my 25 favorite songs about Bonnie Vare mm. and I wrote about 4,000 words on it. I went deep into his career. And I, I wrote a lot about Wisconsin and Eau Claire. Yeah. And, and that local connection certainly colors my opinion of his music. You know, I'll be upfront about that bias <laughs> as well. You and I disagree on Bonnie Bear. Uh, I know that you put, you put this record in your top 10. Yeah. I, rem- I remember, because we talked about this earlier this year. But, like, you have... Uh, is it fair to say you've soured on Bonnie Bear in the last 10 years? Yeah, you know, I, I just got to like uh, acknowledge like off the top that I'm going to be fighting from like a defensive crouch in this episode <laughs> because, you know, it's like it, it, this would be what's the maybe I'm on the defense. I don't know, man. Like this guy's from Wisconsin, so it does get kind of personal. I mean, if you were to like if we were doing it, but if you're the if you're the Giamatti, though, you have the power of the federal government behind you, and I'm just poor Bobby Axelrod <laughs> trying to uh, trying to know, make an honest the buck. government. Um, exactly. Yeah, me and Wags, <laughs> you know, Axe Capital here. Um, yeah, I mean, this would be like if you were to like have an entire episode uh, talking about the Hooters and we danced. I mean, like as a Philadelphian, <laughs> like that is just so ingrained in my culture. That we'd be on the same page with that. Okay, that's actually a good attack. point. But um, that song. Yeah, with uh, gosh, I I remember 
hearing Bon Iver, the, sec- the second album, LP2, let's call it, like around 10 years ago this time, I remember being home in, back in suburban Philadelphia and my like my most memorable experience hearing that album was like getting like it was like 95 degrees super humid a type of weather i had not experienced in ages you know having lived in los angeles and i sat with that album on just like in a towel i had just been in a pool or something like that and having it like wash over me and it it just really connected on that level as from a, from a sound experience of just having this sort of humid all consuming wash and you know the more i listen to it though like it sounds it it sounds like it was recorded in an herbal a bottle of herbal essences to me there's like uh, oh, yeah it, it's just got that like really floral almost cloying sort of production to it where everything's just like coated in reverb and there's like not a second of silence there's horns in every corner since in every corner and um i don't know like that album i could still listen to and enjoy it like i don't know like i don't know how i feel about that that particular album like it it can change from minute to minute depending on my mood now where i think we really disagree is what happened from that point forward like with um 22 a million and i i and i or whatever you want to describe it but um yeah to me it just sounds i'm gonna i'm gonna just call it college rock in a way that is not quite the typical definition i think if i were like 22 this stuff would absolutely like explode my brain um and you know brief maybe change the way i think about music um there is kind of a kid a aspect to both of those records where it's like wow they're like completely changing what people do with like syntax with uh you know, the vocal processing and things like that. But like, I don't know, nowadays when I hear it, I'm like, like token on dope or like that one line from I and I, I just hear like the lyrics is kind of unintentionally silly. You know, like that's kind of the vibe I get from modern Bon Iver albums. But I mean, I, I know. Well, how do you feel about the first record? Okay. So the first, the, f- the one before the you know the big breakthrough. I mean, Four Emma was a big hit too. Oh right? yeah, no. And if you go on Twitter, I'm sorry. If you go on Spotify, mm-hmm. I, I feel like most of his biggest songs are still from that first record. Yeah, um, now Skinny Love, uh, you know, uh, like Restacks. Yeah, a lot of those songs are are still, and and that record sounds the most conventional compared to oh the later absolutely. Records, although, I would say, you know, we were talking about the influence of Bonnie Bear. And um, one thing you can say about Justin Vernon, whether you're a fan or not, and I'm a big fan. I, 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 I love his catalog. I think each record is a world unto itself in a way that I can't think of. Like, there's not a lot of modern music catalogs that I think you could say that about. But whether you're a fan or not, one thing you can't take away from him is that as far as singer-songwriters go, he's one of the only... It may be the only truly innovative artist to work in that sphere in the last, like, say, 15, 20 years. You know, there's been a lot of great singer-songwriters, but they tend to work within the lineage of great singer-songwriters. You hear them and you can say, well, they connect to Bob Dylan, they connect to Joni Mitchell, Leonard Cohen, what have you. You can't really do that with Justin Vernon in terms of both the lyrics and the music. Now, you talk about the lyrics and... It is true that like he isn't a 
traditional singer-songwriter in that you can take his lyrics out of his songs and look at them on the page and they work as poetry or as like a like a narrative story. Mm-hmm. He really is operating purely from the perspective of sound yeah. and, and, and sensation and using sounds and using words to evoke a feeling rather than uh, telling you what the feeling should be. Like most singer-songwriters, they tell you about the breakup they went through. Uh-huh. Justin Vernon writes songs that like, make you feel what it felt like to go through the break the breakup. And if you take the lyrics out of the context in the same way that if you took like a bass line out of the song or you took a synth line out of the out of the song, yeah, it might not work. But I don't think there's any question that for instance that first record, yeah. You know, that's considered this great big breakup record, but if you look at the lyrics, I mean th- there's not a yeah. lot of like literal That's the thing. talking about that. It just evokes the feeling of being broken up. And I think that's an achievement. Yeah. I mean, to operate purely in terms of sound and music that way, um, I don't know. To me, it just totally changes what we expect from singer-songwriters yeah. uh, who, attend to, who tend to be much more literal with, with, with their songwriting. So that would be the case I would make for him. Yeah, I would say or, the first record definitely does that. Like, I mean, I can't quote any of the lyrics offhand. And like, it's so weird that album sort of... Look, I, I'm just going to like... that. Like, 2007 as a whole was just... I can just write that year off, kind of, sort of. And Really? Yeah, it's 2007. I was like... I was like... or I was there, but I was not there. And so... When I when, oh you mean personally oh personally yeah and like because that album like should absolutely be one that I I hold dear to my heart as like a classic like that is just my sort of style of me- music and when I listen to it now maybe it's a bit uh, influenced by its uh, omnipresence in uh, you know television and so forth it's 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 a little hard to revisit without the baggage I do enjoy that one I think a song. Like a lump sum is you know extremely evocative in a way that I find that his um, subsequent albums are just like kind of cluttered to me. Um, but yeah, I'd say like that. I got no truck with Forever Forever ago. I think it is one of the definitive you know one of the definitive storylines of uh, in, you know indie rock over the past uh, twenty years. I would say like the cabin thing will forever be a touchstone to talk about. Certain yeah, that, that's going. That's going to be in the first paragraph of his obit, no matter yeah. what he does. Like people are going to bring up the cabin and being in Northwoods, Wisconsin, yeah. and I mean, in a way, and I think this is a little bit reductive, but there does there is a ring of truth to the idea that his career has been about getting away from that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, no, absolutely. I mean, he because it's I, been overt. <laughs> and I think with that record, one of the big misconceptions of that record i think when it came out was this idea that justin vernon was this americana guy who was this paragon of authenticity yeah. you know that he's wearing the flannel shirt the he's beard. a guitar slinger the beard and i think a certain kind of music fan who's really into that idea glommed onto him even though again when you listen to that record i think it does a lot of things that aren't really traditional no. that you wouldn't really associate with that kind of songwriting. But then you get into the blood bank EP oh, that comes yeah. out and that has the song woods on it, yeah. which is the first time that he's experimenting with auto tune. That's like one of the f- real before and after moments of indie rock over the past, let's say 15 years. Like you look at it, like it, that and that is like AD, like BC into AD. 
And it's hard to express, I think, to people now yeah. how big of a deal that was. Because now it just seems like... Whatever. You know? well, yeah, whatever. But, you know, it, this is this is kind of an over-exaggeration, uh, but not really. I mean, it nope. is like the Dylan goes electric yeah. of that period. Because he took something that I think a certain kind of musical purist took as like a... A signifier of like crass commerciality, you know, auto tune. People associate. I think that was the same year Jay Z released "Death of Auto Tune," and like that's that was like right. a rap song where auto tune was like used, like you know, not if not exclusively, like just all the time. And so you have this yeah. this folk yeah, you, dude say like using auto tune, you know? Yeah, exactly. This uh, yeah, th- he's taking something that uh, yeah, like a certain kind of purist is saying like, well, this isn't real music, mm-hmm. and he's saying, well, no, I'm gonna take it into my music, and I'm gonna use it in a different kind of way, like where I'm not gonna use it to make my voice sound perfect. I'm gonna actually use it to distort my yeah. Voice and he's not the f- and he's not the first person to do that. Like obviously, like to use it for texture, but in the context of that, it's like I can't think of any other person working in the popular indie realm who you know, did that. I mean, like, you know, they even beat, like, say, Vampire Weekend to that punch, you know? And it does seem like for that kind of artist, again, someone who was slotted in the Americana or folk lane, you know, he was able to transcend that because he was conversant with hip-hop culture, I think, in a way that, like, a lot of indie artists at that time were not. Yeah. And And he was able to use stuff like that in an organic way. And, of course, shortly after that, you know, Woods is the song that gets him into the Kanye West camp. Mm-hmm. And that really blew him up mm-hmm. um, in a pop sense, I think. I don't think he gets the Grammy for Best New Artist. Yeah, um, I don't know. If, he, if, if he's not with Kanye West. I think that put him in the, in the minds of people mm. who weren't pitchfork readers. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think that put him on the map in like a pop music sense. Yeah. And, and he's now the guy who's doing songs like with Taylor Swift. You know, I mean, he's still putting himself in that mm. kind of context while also being outside the pop world yeah. in a lot of ways. But I also think that like his it, what what like his involvement in the hip hop world, it kind of, and I think this happens a lot with artists who you know are who who somehow make that leap. Is that there's always this presumption that like, oh, this person's like ahead of the curve and. I'm going to like make a comparison that's really going to piss you off. But like when I hear Bony Bear albums, like the la- you know the most recent ones, I hear it not altogether different than like James Blake, you know, where it's like. That's a natural comparison. Yeah. I, think. It, it like, I mean, James Blake was influenced by Bony Bear. Yeah. And I think, you know, for sure. And, and, and it's sort of like, oh man, like rather than thinking like, I don't know, man, like maybe this, it, you know, maybe this is, he's like off, he, he's kind of gone off the deep end with this stuff. It's like, no, man, like, trust me, like, you know, like ASAP Rocky thinks this is an amazing song. So like, yeah, and you kind of have to like play along with it in the way that like, I don't think you would have if, uh, you know, he was just a guy continuing to like make, make the same music, but not as ensconced in the greater pop sphere. Like you kind of have to, like you have to give them the benefit of the doubt. And I find myself doing that less and less. I listened to II this morning uh, just to get myself ready for this episode. And there are parts of me is like, oh, this is interesting with sound. And, you know, I could see where the knee jerk reaction to it. of like, this brilliant is coming through, but eh. I, I I feel the same way I do about like James Blake. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask you something 
about because we've talked about on our show like numerous times about this shift that happened in the early 2010s yes from the traditional indie rock aesthetics being derived from from punk and like 80s underground music mm-hmm. to more of like a pop uh aesthetic yeah you know coming into like you know 2011 12 13 and in this regard too i feel like justin vernon was ahead of the curve because oh, yeah. you, when you when you listen to that second record you know the most controversial song at the time was this song it's the song at the end of the record beth rest yes which when people heard it and i i put myself in this camp i was a reactionary against that song mm. Uh, in the moment, and I, I love that song now. But uh, you know, people heard that song, and they compared Bon Iver to Bruce Hornsby mm-hmm. in a way that it was intended to be like a self-evident insult. Like, <laughs> of course, he should be insulted by that. And of course, the years go on, and Justin Vernon actually ends up absorbing Bruce Hornsby yeah. <laughs> into Bon Iver. You know, he plays on the the last Bon Iver record, I I. Uh, there's, there's a collaboration between Vernon and Hornsby, and I love Bruce Hornsby too. So like I'm 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 pro that. Mm. Again, Justin and I come from Wisconsin. We're both raised on album oriented rock radio. <laughs> I think you can't underestimate the influence of that on uh, you know Gen X Wisconsin uh, people. <laughs> right. Uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm I'm curious. Like, do you is that part of your aversion to him in a way um, that 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 he was a in a way like a uh, like a midwife for, <laughs> for that Bruce Br- transition. Bruce Hornsby, not really. I think my problem with or like the '80s rockification of of indie music, which I think is you know, part of the, yeah. the shift that happened yeah. in the last decade. I mean, I think my problem with like Beth Rest is that like on the actual album, it's like the production just seems terrible to me. Like I have no problem with. I mean, look, that same year, I think I put uh, M83. Uh, Hurry Up, We're Dreaming is my number one album. So I'm definitely not uh, inherently against 80s sounding stuff. It's that... Um, the- Am I off base? Yeah, by, go on. Because I've been listening to like a lot of 80s rock on cassette. <laughs> and to me, that's what Beth Rest sounds like. Yeah. Am I wrong to liken that to like a late stage chill wave type thing? Uh, I feel like it has it's, that aesthetic yeah, it's, to me it's, looking it's, back it's on it. It's not off base. Like I think that in a... There's this general sense of, for lack of a better term, vibiness. I think that's in a lot of ways what Boney Bear stood for. Um, not stood for, but helped kind of usher into uh, indie rock in the 2010s. I think it's become more like, you know, our friend of the pod, Larry Fitzmaurice, called it vibe generation. And I think you could see Boney Bear as being uh, quite a lo- quite similar, if not similar, along the same lines as like Tame Impala or on Drugs, where it's more about evoking a feeling that is a lot of times based in um, 80s sounds. Uh, you know, I think Bon Iver is not a chill wave artist. Some of his production is very similar in that it's like very waterlogged and uh, kind of faded. But um, I think it's reflective. Uh, it, he, he gets to kind of, it's, it's sort of genius how he gets to play both sides where he's like seen just as this folky truth teller just because of his past, but also can play with like pure sound and pure vibes. Like I think if I were to hear like II or 20, uh, a million in a store or something like that, and I would just hear the pure sonics of it and not lean into it, it would probably sound brilliant to me in the same way that like, you know, whenever I hear like a war on drugs or a Tame Impala song, like regardless of like how much I take from the lyrics, like it sounds great just as background music. And so, um, I think that's kind of where, 
Uh, one thing I, I think that's kind of where it comes in. Now we didn't mention we didn't mention Radiohead as a comparative point, which I think is like is 22, oh, 22 a million. I mean, obviously people compare that to Kid A a lot, right? Yeah, I mean, I think as far as a record that comes after a big hit yeah. and then takes a dramatic left turn, mm. um, twenty two a million is the modern example of that. Like a lot of, I mean, artists don't really do that anymore. Yeah. I mean, like, like, what are other examples of that? Like from the last ten years, I can't think of it. Uh, but I mean, what 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 I love about Boney Bear, and I think maybe the greatest testament to his influence is that, in the same way that at the turn of the twenty twenty first century, you get like. British bands who would be like the next Radiohead because they sounded like OK Computer or The Benz. There is, and we don't talk about this, and I don't think anyone really talks about it in mainstream music criticism. There, I feel, is this kind of underbelly of artists who sound like Bon Iver circa forever, or even Bon Iver, Bon Iver, that like you can just get away with that. You can like rack up tens of. There's this you can rack up like tens of millions of Spotify plays if you sort of sound like that. Have you ever heard of this guy called Novo Amor? Never. All right, so this guy is like pretty popular, and there are other artists like that as well. Uh, it's almost like the the version of like ours, like oh, like Novo Amor. I'm just gonna read off some Spotify playlists. Anchor, 128 million plays, 49 million plays for State Line, 74 million plays for Carry You, and this is like it's almost like ours that band <laughs> that was just like complete ripoff of like the bands but like when I lo- when I heard it in 2020 like 2001 I thought it was brilliant there is this thriving subculture of bony bear uh sound alikes that are just kind of killing it under our, underneath our view yeah which doesn't surprise me yeah and because in a way he's not making those records anymore. Yeah. And, and and like those are his most popular records. So there's an audience out there that wants Bunny Bear to just keep making For Emma Forever Ago, you know, like four or five times. And he's not gonna do that. So there's a market out there for someone else to do it. Yeah. So that 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 totally makes sense to me. You know, I think another comparison that I would make with Bonnie Bear would be to Wilco. Oh yeah. Just because I feel like Wilco as this upper Midwest, you know, musical institution, Bonnie Bear, in a lot of ways, is like the next iteration of Wilco, and it's interesting to to look at how they parallel and converge from one another. Mm. And I think the big difference is that Bonnie Bear isn't as tied to rock history yeah. in the same way that Wilco is. I, I feel like Bonnie Bear, in a way, is much more embedded in the music of the internet and, and, and like streaming and all that world. And I, which is why I expect those records to age really well. I mean, Wilco, I think those records age really well too, but it's just like a different idea. I I would expect like a 13 year old to get into Bonnie Bear before Wilco. Absolutely. I I feel like there's more connection to like what's going on and youth culture in a way, even though Bonnie Bear now is a legacy act, Mm -hmm. you can draw a line from that band to like a lot of what's going on now in music. And that's why I call it like college rock. Like in the same way people will go through a Wilco phase when they're starting to like expand beyond like what they've heard on the radio or, you know, whatever you want to consider the monoculture. Like I imagine people will have a Bon Iver phase in the same way they have a Radiohead phase, same way they have like See, a I, Wilco phase. Not a phase that they grow out of, but like... I would expect 
Bon Iver to be one of those bands that, depending on, on when you grew up, would be like one of the first bands you liked, like a band that you liked a lot in middle school and high school, and then then you get away from yeah. them. Maybe, like, maybe I just had a maybe yes, I, I just had like a later development as a music snob. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I mean we have a different perspective because Bon Iver came out in our twenties, yeah. but I think if you were a teenager when that dropped. I could totally see that being your version of like grunge or something. <laughs> what grunge was to me, or like what pop punk or emo might be to someone else. Like the music that you love as a teenager, and then maybe you go through a phase where you don't like it anymore because you associate it with your teenage self and you want to get away from that. And then you get a little bit older and then you want to go back to it. Huh. Um, I could see that. I could see Bunny Bear being that. For a lot of people. I mean, like I interviewed Michelle Zahner from Japanese Breakfast recently, and I was talking to her about aughts era huh. indie. And, you know, and even 90s indie a little bit, you know, Built to Spill, also like Bright Eyes, Arcade Fire, stuff like that. Yeah. And and she was very upfront. She said, look, you know, I grew up with that stuff. I love it. But I'm also still at the age where I don't have enough distance from it, and it's hard for me to claim it. Huh. Because... That was her teenage music, you know? So I think, yeah, I think everyone goes through that phase with different artists. I, I just feel like maybe Bon Iver hit a generation of people at a pretty young age, and maybe they'll get back to it at some point. Mm. I don't know. Pure speculation. Who knows? But I love Bon Iver. I'm, I'm pro Bon Iver. You like some Bon Iver. You're annoyed with other Bon Iver. Is that, is that a yeah, fair Yeah, IndieCast contains multitudes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, yeah, so we're back in business uh, after a week of uh, missing out on Recommendation Corner, but I want to bring up an EP that came out last week uh, by a band called Military Gun. If you're looking for it, military is spelled with an I-E rather than a Y. Um, This is a band that uh, features the front man named Ian Shelton from uh, Regional Justice Center and Self-Defense Family, two bands that, you know, have very uh, deep catalogs. Regional Justice Center, I I think, was the first power violence album to ever make the Billboard Top 200. But uh, they put out an EP called All Roads Lead to the Gun, um, and it will be followed by All Roads Lead to the Gun 2, uh, another one coming out in September. But this is like... Uh, the bands I had mentioned, Self-Defense Family, Regional Justice Center, it's kind of this like kind of talk post-hardcore kind of shouty, but also kind of power pop as well. I saw it on Twitter referred to as like a combination of Unsane and Joyce Manor. And in some ways, when you hear it, it seems like it shouldn't mesh because it's got the the guys playing a Rickenbacker guitar in the video. But there's just a very burly guy shouting over it. But I think that this album is extremely promising um, in joining these two what might seem uh, like mismatched genres. Um, it like kind of slaps, but also kind of catchy and like poppy. Um, yeah, it's not, it's just not a combination I've heard at all before. And I think these guys do it really well. So, And it's also nine minutes long, four songs. So... I would wholeheartedly recommend uh, checking out it. It would be worth the investment that Steve put into the Bo Burnham uh, special. You can, <laughs> you know, you could say, you could tell, you could write in the mailbag, "Hey, Ian, I gave Military Gun nine minutes and I wasn't feeling it." So the ten minute test. Which, by the way, if, if I don't say before I talk about something that 
I only listened to this for 10 minutes, then you should assume that I have dug down deep and done a thoughtful listen. But if I'm doing the <laughs> disclaimer that I only gave it 10 minutes, that's your warning to take what I said with a grain of salt. So anyway, not to return to the Bo Burnham discourse. Um, my recommendation this week, and I'm going to continue my obnoxious practice of recommending albums that aren't out yet oh. because well look i listen to promos i tend to listen to promos that tends to be you know dominate my at least listening of new music uh tends to be albums that aren't out yet so let me plant the seed for you to get excited about a record coming out next month it's called mirror two it's by a band called the goon Sacks. this is a band from australia and Look, if I say it's a band from Australia, <laughs> yeah. you can either assume that it's a band like ACDC, you know, a hard rock, kick-ass band, or you can assume that it's a very clever and melodic indie band. And the Goon Sax does not sound like ACDC. Oh. Uh, in fact, it's interesting because the guitar player in this band is actually the son of one of the members of one of the defining uh, bands of clever and melodic Australian indie rock, the Go-Betweens. Ah. So they are literally in the lineage of great Australian <laughs> bands uh, of the past. But um, I've been really enjoying this record. And look, it's a record that I think could be described as twee. I think I've seen that out there. There's like a little bit of like K Records influence mm -hmm. in what they're doing. Um, but again, if you like guitar pop bands from Australia uh, that write songs like with clever, heart-rending lyrics... I think I've said the word clever five times already uh, in this recommendation corner. I think you will like this record. Uh, it's called Mirror 2. This is the third album by this band. So uh, you can check out the new single that uh, that came out recently. It's called In the Stone. It's the first song from the record. It's a really good song. And then you can check out their other records. So I would, I would recommend investigating this band, getting into them, and getting you ready for that record to come out. It comes out July 9th, I believe. Oh, Again, it's Lord. called Mirror 2. Real, re yeah, early adapter right here. Hey, man, we're, <laughs> that's right, we're building the hype yeah. for this band. Again, they're called the Goon Sack, so definitely check them out. They're a really good band. Um, that about does it for this episode of IndieCast. Uh, thank you all for listening to this episode. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.